we are in Studio One at Sunset Sound Recorders. It's December 17th, 2021, and I'm here with one of my favorite people, Miss Orianthi. Oh, how are you, Drew? I'm good. Is it kind of weird that we've just been hanging out for an hour, but now we have to act like we just got together? It was completely weird, but I'm used to it. <laughs> so good. We were just hanging out in the famous courtyard with mm-hmm. uh, my friends Allie and AJ. You got to meet yeah. them. Oh, they're wonderful. Very sweet. I cannot yeah. wait to hear their music and... Um, yeah, this is this has been awesome actually recording out of the studio and the vibe and even the courtyard vibe is great. Got the basketball court there, which I sort of played a terrible game at <laughs> before. Um, but you know, it's such a as I said, I love the studio. It's probably my favorite studio in the in the world. So, and we made a great record together with mm-hmm. well about ten other people. But in Studio Two, from what was it September to now, we're still yeah. kind of. Joe Ciccarelli is going to mix it. and I'm so stoked about that. Well, that's so kind. You're so complimentary of Sunset Sound. Plus, it's just like the perfect space for an artist like you. You know, I've we've been together or talked almost every day for five months now. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I am just blown away by your talent. Every time I hear wow. you play a note, I sent you that clip the other day of, you know, you get solo takes on the first try. And Jacob's oh, like, uh, yeah, <laughs> Ori, it's the first take, but you already got it. You know what? It's all about being inspired. And I got to tell you, the energy here, the musicians that come through here, all of you guys, it just feels good. And when you're in that realm, it's kind of easy to create. It really is. And energy is everything in life. Like if you, you could have like the perfect scenario, the perfect studio, the perfect everything. But if the vibe isn't right, then it feels kind of just stale, you know, but and I'm a very like sort of colorful person, um, so I love to have different characters and energies come in and out, and you know bounce off of and and bring different things to the table, and so and offer it to feel like it just friends, friends hanging out in a room together, and that's why I had so many people come in and just hang when we were recording, you know, because it was just like I needed that vibe, you know, and just excitement and hearing the stuff that we were tracking. I mean, mostly live that we did in studio two which was just so cool um after COVID, especially when you're you know alone working on a computer or working out of your you know home and then getting into a room and actually just like having you know justin andres on bass and then glenn sobel on drums and then i'm playing guitar and we're tracking all the songs live you know and then having jacob in the room and all of you guys and just that's what he went for and and then jacob was so great in the sense as a producer to capture that Jacob Skiba, Gary Clark Jr. producer, uh, Government Mule. Uh, let's yeah. let's talk about the record now, and we'll absolutely circle let's back around that. again. But so we did a project together, and then you said you had to do a record. Mm-hmm. I said let's get Jacob Skiba, who won three Grammys the year before with Gary Clark Jr. And yeah. he's literally, I think, one of the greatest person I've ever been in the room with. He's Younger, but is going to be a household name when it comes to producing. Um, oh, completely. Uh, you, you are know. you happy with what how he produced your record? Very happy, you know, because the thing is, I'd never met Jacob before, never worked with him. So he came over to my condo and and you know my hippie joint and went through my garage band demos, and it was just like it was kind of this crazy like like speed dating. It's like okay, come in, you know, nice to meet you. Here's all my ideas. Here's what I'm all about. You know, it's kind of crazy actually because I. Usually with producers or people I work with, it's it's a friendship that kind of grows into, yeah. oh, let's make a record together. But this was like a suggestion a from date. you. What's that? Like a Tinder date. It, completely. This is a completely Tinder date. And I was like, all right, come over. And then, hi, okay, listen to the, these shitty garage band demos. And he was like, 
you know, I kind of dig these over the ones that you've co-written with a lot of different people. He said, it sounds like you. And I was like, I kind of dug that about him because he was, he was more about just kind of, you know, rough around the edges, but making it just happen out of the energy and the vibe and, and what the songs yes. were about. And we first started this record thinking it was going to be a live sort of blues album, right? And then it sort of progressed into, no, let's really hone in on the songs. Let's make this kind of, not too polished, but something that's kind of, I guess you would kind of say that some of the songs are pretty alternative to blues, to rock, but right. it's just capturing a, an, an energy that is different from any other record I've made, right? So that's kind of going along with a feeling. And I think that's the main thing that you got to do with any song or record. You just go with a feeling. And, and we all kept the excitement up. We kept the energy up and bringing in different artists that were very happy to be a part of it, which I was very honored about. I would just fly in and like Robert Randolph, everybody. It was kind of pretty wild, I must say, but it felt like a performance most of the time too and a hang. So it was like a hang and then, okay, now we're going to play. And everyone was just, everyone just seemed really happy to be a part of it, which made me really just feel very honored and blessed. Yeah. You know? We filmed the whole thing and obviously it's that vibe too, which mm -hmm. is just documented that everybody, you know, Everybody wanted to come on your record. They were like, Robert Randolph flew out from Nashville, actually from Newark to Nashville to here for 12 hours to play one solo <laughs> on lap steel guitar. And, you know, let's, who else was on the record? Joe Bonamassa played on uh, a yeah. great track, yeah, which is a bluesy it. kind of vibe on that. Uh, yeah, it was so bad. And, and you know, Joe came in and just like we had the cameras rolling. He just plugged in and we we're ready to go. And, and it's funny because we sent him another song and he was like, oh, no, actually you're playing on this one. So... Um, and, and that was really awesome. And then, you know, it was like Carmen, my great friend, Carmen Vandenberg from Bones UK. Yeah. Um, she saw, you know, on the Instagram postings that I did, it looked like a party at sunset, right? So she's like, <laughs> that's right. And, and, uh, she, and so she came in and, and to hang actually the first day and then she's going to play on something. She goes, I would love to. So the next day she comes in with a whole rig and ready to go. And we play on this track called In My Head, which I wrote. A while ago actually um by myself and and it's such a vibe and she added some really cool edgy sounds to it and just brought a different well her energy to it which i loved and we're back and forth on the solo we're gonna make a rad video clip for it and so grateful she was a part of it she's really excited big time yeah um well also it was kind of just worked out that everybody that was a f featured on the record or on a track was almost perfect for that song too it wasn't like mm -hmm. joe bonamassa played on like a kind of cutting edge funk song or something he played on like a blues track carmen was on the heavier um kind of metal industrial song uh robert randolph was on the blues song which gary clark jr is now while we're speaking laying the other solo on it honestly studio so on it thank you gary thank you <laughs> big love to everybody um, um who Ro else is robbie krieger Robbie Krieger laid down on that same song. So on that song, we have Robbie Krieger, Gary Clark Jr., Robert Randolph, and Orianthi. It's like a, a Kanye First time West please. record. <laughs> it's kind of, I mean, honestly, it's there's a lot of different parts on the songs, um, spaces for guitar yeah. solos too. Yeah. And it, well, I don't feel like, I don't feel like it's crowded. Like at first, when when we say you got that many guests, and Jacob and I were talking about this and yourself as well, and we're going, you know, we don't want to cram too much stuff on a song. But it doesn't feel that way because, you know, when Michael Bearden took a solo, who's an incredible, you know, he's just an incredible musician all, musician all the way around. He put down an amazing solo on, on um, Damn Fall. Yeah. And that comes before the guitar solos when we go back and forth at the end. 
but everything has its place. And it's, I think it's really done in a way where it's not like overwhelming. It doesn't sound crowded. This record is something I'm, I'll be proud of until I'm, I can't play anymore. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. It's so raw and organic. And also shout out to Michael Bearden, who's obviously your friend through Michael Jackson, but he played oh, on the whole him. record um, as a genius keyboard player, musical director for Lady Gaga, Madonna, everybody. And he's, he's kind of been a fixture here now ever since also. He loves it here. Just He gets the sunset buck, which you've... <laughs> I, I got it straight away. And then, because uh, I'd worked out of here quite a few times on different projects and, um, you know, especially, I don't know why, but Japanese sessions were done here yeah. <laughs> in Studio 2. Just a lot, a lot of them. Um, and, and so, I don't know why, but it just happened that way. Like, yeah, because I guess when they when they come here to America, like, what's the most like iconic studio that we can yeah. record out of? Sunset Sound, right? So they come here. And then when I came back here to do something and then we were chatting over email about doing some filming here and then I came here and I was like, okay, this is this is definitely the place I want to make an album, um, especially after the year that we've all been through, yes. you know, and I think as musicians not being able to play shows and all that kind of stuff and you have a lot of time to think, you have a lot of time to reflect over stuff that you've done, you know, where you want to go, right? So, yeah, making this record, I, I hope, people receive it in the way that the way it was created you know out of a lot of love a lot of like friendship good vibes and just you know it's I hope it inspires you know people to want to pick up an instrument guitar especially because um you know my favorite records growing up were guitar records and collaboration records like B.B. King to Eric Clapton sitting in with like you know it's like Stevie Ray or Albert King and um you know Love Comes to Town, you 2 and B.B. King, you know, and, and you just, that kind of stuff where it's like yeah. back and forth and, and um, you know, it's kind of something I wanted to do is just do a guitar collab record in a way that, that's commercial, you know what I mean, that's sort of digestible too. So if you're not a guitar player, you go, oh, this is a cool song, you know, this is not just an indulgent guitar album, which I love as well, right, because yeah. I'm a, you know, big guitar fan, of course. But um, this is something I think all the songs have – you know, different purposes and, and could be on radio. They have choruses. So, yeah. Did you write some of this stuff recently or were these songs that you kind of had, you know, you, you've been an artist now for a long time mm -hmm. and you've wrote songs since you were 10 years old. Um, yeah. Did you have these songs kind of in the last couple of years or did you write them for this record or was it kind of both? Uh, a bit of both, actually. I started these songs um, in 2020, actually, during COVID. A lot of them were just garage band you know, demos or whatever that were half done. So when Jacob heard them, he like he's like, finish that one. I like that one. Or, or you know, I'd play him full songs that I'd finished with different co-writers. He'd be like, you know, I don't really dig these as much as your own stuff because it's it's got an edge to it. It's definitely something that, you know, I think is more you. And that's what I kind of dug about Jacob is he just wanted to go with something that felt like more me than an outfit put on me by working with different people out of, whether it be Nashville or here because – when you go on those writing trips, it's very easy to fall into other people's vibes sometimes because they come in and they're like, we have this outfit for you and we know exactly what we want to do. And you, and you kind of have to go along with it. Otherwise, you're the arsehole. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sometimes, you know what I mean? And so um, and other times it's like, you know, you just feel like when you're writing by yourself, it's a bit weird. But honestly, some of the realest songs coming come from writing by yourself. And, and as scary as it can be to show people. Because you feel like really vulnerable about that, because it's you can't blame it on somebody else. Yes. <laughs> that's a shitty song. You know what I mean? Oh, that was the other person. You know what I mean? It's not, you know, nothing to do with it. But no, this is all. A lot of the songs were actually 
mostly I, I wrote on this record, lyrics and music. So, yeah. yeah. And the great Jacob Bunton, uh, give him a shout out. He co-wrote oh. one of the great songs. Dear friend of mine, Jacob Bunton, um, we've written a lot of songs together over the years. Um, we wrote Ghost together, Low together. Um, you know, Michael Beard and I wrote some really great songs too um, together for this song. Um, Guess You Never Love Me Anyway, which is just a piano ballad. And I don't know, it's kind of got like an Adele kind of meets Billy Joel feel to it almost. It's yeah, kind of weird to say that. but <laughs> Describing it. Also, <laughs> anyway. shout out to Joe Banamasa's amp, which you left here for us, the Dunbull. That we didn't blow it up. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't destroyed. It's that been kept very safe. Fire. I think it was very fire. And, um, yeah, thank you for that, um, Joe. Really, um, really kind of you. Um, and it, but it made me want to replace every solo I've ever played. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it was kind of, you know, like it. Um, but, yeah, that was – it was very cool, very, very cool. And it's, um, we, we tracked a lot with that amp after, after he left. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. I think he's coming to get it today or tomorrow too. So we'll have to say our final goodbyes to it. I want to learn more about how you grew up, though, because it's so fascinating. Obviously, you're from Australia, Mm -hmm. Adelaide. Your dad teaches you guitar. He has an affinity for the blues, which you kind of learned playing the blues. Now, my dad used to work with Buddy Guy. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, so what happened was, um, that was ages ago. I I actually met Buddy Guy. I met Buddy Guy. Okay, this is a crazy story. At a rehearsal for playing at the Kennedy Honors in front of Obama. For with, Santana? With for, for Santana and Billy Joel and Obama. And um, wow. Michael Bearden was there. And I was walking into rehearsals. It was, I think, Kenny Arnoff was there. And, and we we're playing with Steve Winwood. Everybody's everything. Love him. Um, he's incredible. Sheila E. Pays and Bali's. And um, so I walked in and Buddy Guy was there and he was playing a song. And actually, one of my, this is a regret of mine. Um, but he's like, you got to join me. I want you to play a song with me tonight. And I, and I was like, no, that's your moment. I didn't want to, you know, play over it. Because I was just like feeling that, you know, I already got, I'm getting to play with Steve Winwood and, and playing that song for Carlos, right? I didn't want to just butt in over it. What song was it? I didn't even know what Buddy Guy was playing. No, the that. one you did with Steve Winwood. Uh, Everybody's Everything. Oh, yeah, you just told me yeah, that. And then- yeah, so, and then Buddy asked me to join him that night. And I said, oh, no, 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 I don't want to, like, butt in or anything. But now I'm going back, <laughs> damn, this buddy guy. But um, he was very sweet. And then and then I went and met him again and hung out with him when when Richie Sambora was sitting in with him, uh, I think, quite a few times at one time at the Canyon Club they were playing together. And um, got to hang backstage with him and was drinking his cognac and we're all just hanging out. And he's such, a, such an incredible player. I mean, honestly, he's, like, one of the last – true blues guitar players around you know, know what i mean around for, for, from uh from back then you know that everyone learned off of and and uh the true legend i mean um, clapton that's clapton's favorite guitar players buddy guy I oh mean, he's amazing just... his you know his playing is something else i mean i was listening to sweet tea the other day and um you know baby don't leave me and all that and and uh, a bunch of stuff but his charisma on stage like the way that he carries himself and he's happy you know what I mean? It's like he's got that down and out blues situation. And the same with B.B. King, you know, when he was playing the blues, it, it's not like down and out sort of thing. It's, it's about like he was dancing in his seat when he was playing. Yeah. He hit one note. And and it, to me, that was inspiring as a kid. You know, you, you, you see B.B. King and he's hitting one note and it speaks like a thousand notes, you know. And that got me. And, and I used to get my dad's 335 he had at the time, a brown one, exactly like 
BB Kings because my dad is a guitar collector. He loves guitars. Um, he's left-handed though, so I started left-handed when yeah. I first started. You're ambidextrous, right? Um, so yeah, I started writing with my left hand as well, and I went to Greek school, and they said it was wrong. It was really weird. And I used to get in trouble for writing with my left hand, and you should be writing with your right hand. And it was something very bizarre. I don't even know. I've asked my parents about that crap because I have no idea what happened there. But anyway, so now I write with my right hand and play guitar, you know, right-handed because my dad was like, "Oh, if you stay left-handed." You're going to go into a guitar store and you get the you get the crappy uh, yeah. two guitars in the corner that you get to choose from. <laughs> so I don't want you going down that road. Yeah. You're going to learn right-handed. So I was like, okay. And so he restrung a guitar for me the other way around. And um, to really connect with my dad, I actually played guitar because that's what, what he did when he got home from work. We'd sit there in his in the living room, put on old records from Cream, Jimi Hendrix, um, you know, Santana, Abraxas, um, just everything, basically, you know, Led Zeppelin. ACDC, that's where they uh, yeah, for you? Or kind really? of Roy Orbison and all that kind of stuff my dad was really into, yeah, like real classic. Your, yeah. To the Shadows. My dad was a big Shadows fan, and, you know, Hank Marvin and all that. And he used to listen to a ton of different things. And my mom listened to Frank Sinatra. Were your parents together? My yeah. parents divorced when I was eight. Were your parents together, though? They lived together, everything? Yeah, that's great. absolutely, yeah. They got together. And, and, you know, my mom listened to a lot of country records from – I don't know what, like Faith Hill to different old country records, like Dolly Parton and then Frank Sinatra, then Michael Bolton. Um, so she listened to a lot of different things. And so my parents' record collection was always playing around the house, you know. So I loved a good pop song and I loved a good like blues song. So I would try to learn. I think the first song I ever learned was um, Beatles song, Twist and Shout. My dad no taught me way. those chords. Yeah, when That's I was six cool. years old. So he Holy learned, cow. I learned um, D, A, and E. And then I thought to myself, okay, now I can write whatever I want. And I wrote my first song when I was seven and performed it in front of the school, school assembly. It was called Spin Your Jackets Around. And I had my friends as backup dancers. And actually Oprah put it on her show. It was on the Oprah show. So Oprah went free. She put a clip of you guys up there? Unfortunately, my mother found it and emailed the producer. <laughs> so... <laughs> yes, that exists. That's that's there, and um, I'm using my dad's one two five Gibson, which is red, and that's why my new Gibson is red because it was one of the first guitars that I, I actually told my I, I didn't tell my dad I would take it to school, right? And then he got wind of it because one time I came in, and I had the guitar in my hand, and he was coming home. He came home early. He's like, "What's she doing that guitar?" And I was like, oh, "I just took it to school." He's like, "You took my one two five Gibson to school," and I was like, "You know, show and tell. It's like assembly and." And I'll take the amplifier in too. He's found a twin. How old were you then? Ten? Seven. Seven. Holy Seven. cow. Is that like, is there, do they have grade system like they do here? Like first through sixth or? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And and so um, we had a school assembly, which was like, you know, I think every Friday or something like that. And, and you would have to, or show and tell. My show and tell was literally, I learned a new song that week. Yeah. You know, Roy Orbison or the Beatles or something. And so kids, at school, I didn't have many friends at school that, well, everyone thought I was really weird. I had the artsy friends, like the the actors or the, you know, uh, just you know, the, the the guys mostly that played like drums and guitar and whatnot and stoners. You know what I mean? <laughs> or like fourteen, fifteen, would go hang out in the music room. But everyone else thought I was really weird because I was dressed as a hippie, playing Santana music or BB King and putting posters on every wall, going, "Want to start a band? BB King, Stevie Ray, That's Santana." Amazing. People were like. We listened to Backstreet Boys and freaking, you know, New Kids on the Block. Like, I don't know what you... Was American music kind of just bigger than anything that came out of Australia? Like, 
you know, I didn't, I didn't grow up in a different country, but obviously American music was kind of. Oh, big in Australia. Yeah. yeah big time. Especially my dad. I mean, cause of his collection, everything on the back kind of said made in America or England. Right. So I thought when I was seven years old, six or seven, I told everybody I'm moving to America. I want to have a, a multi-platinum record and I'm buying myself a Cadillac. And I did that. And you had the Escalade and <laughs> I had the according white. to use 20 anyway, times platinum. Two times platinum. And I told everybody that. So I kind of had to make it happen because it was embarrassing if it didn't. Because I literally <laughs> was like, as this obnoxious, I was an obnoxious child. I really was. Like, literally, my mother was like, it was embarrassing sometimes. I'd go into like schools and because I changed school so many times because I didn't like teachers. I hated authority figures of telling me what to do. Uh -huh. So I'd constantly do things to get out of school. Like, what do you call it? Like, what's that word? Expelled. Expelled, that's right. <laughs> Expelled. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Expelled at seven years old? Well, not around seven, but eight. I was like, what can I do to get out of the school? You know, literally put tons of makeup on, like literal over my face. One time I put blue glitter all over my head and came in late, like and just many times and then just acted strange just so they were like, okay, your, your child has problems. <laughs> you know what I mean? You were rebelling. You wanted to be I a rock to, star. Did yeah. your dad tell you like, or your mom and say, you're a phenom. This is incredible how fast you can pick up this. Would he teach you like scales and pentatonic? and? Yeah, my dad taught me first. And then I went to a Greek uh, guitar teacher who taught me classical. Then I studied classical when I was 10. I went to a university oh, and wow. studied Classical theory. guitar. Yeah, and studied all that, but it felt like school to me, so I didn't like it after about a year or so, but I passed like grade two, grade three, you know, sight reading, all the theory. I learned all the basics, which I think helped me because um, then straight after that, I did an orchestra um, around Australia. I was part of um, in the orchestra pit for Oklahoma production. Oh, wow. So I was one of the guitar players in the orchestra pit, you know, accompanying the live um, theater performance and, you know, you get all the dust kicked on you in the in the pit but I was like 10 years old everyone else was like in their 20s so they were looking at me like this strange child <laughs> but, but you know it was great because I could sight read everything so wow. for every yeah. song for every theme of the, the show and that taught me a lot um and then I just quit school when I was 15 and put three cover bands together signed my first management contract which I co-signed with my parents because I was underage and I just you know from opening up for Steve Vai. How did that happen now? So you start these cover groups, you're playing around Adelaide. Is it all girls or is it, are you the front person or is someone else singing? All guys, uh, much older the in their thirties. Yeah. Wow. And I was 15. So I put a lot of makeup on and pretended. Um, I'm not sure if I got a fake idea. I don't think I did. I'm not sure. Anyway, I just somehow got in there. Were you smoking weed then at 15 or was that like a thing then? Mm. I mean, I smoked weed all through. <laughs> I got kicked out of every high school I went to. You know, yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to, you know, definitely back then, yeah, I was I was a real hippie. I was a real hippie. You and, and found I, out exactly what you want to do and you're obsessed oh, with the guitar and music. Big time. And you know what? It's like when I was when I was young, I, I knew, you know, after seeing Santana perform when I was 11 years old, that's when I quit classical. My dad took me to, it was a Dance of the Rainbow Serpent concert tour, um, Santana, and he, he played Europa and we were in like the nosebleed kind of section right at the top and um he hit those opening notes and that melody is so beautiful um it just hit me straight away I turned to my dad I said I don't want to play classical guitar anymore I want to play electric and and I Carlos is just this evening has hit me in a certain way where 
I feel like this could be my calling to be able to express myself through a guitar like that. Wow. I don't know why, but it just and – I, and I begged him for a, a PRS electric. And, and back then, I mean, they're so expensive and still now they're expensive. And my dad got a secondhand one. He did some trays and worked it out. And, and uh, it was one of the first um, PRSs like from the old factory, right? So it was a 1980-something model. It was brown, Sorry. custom 24, really heavy, owned by a country guitar player prior to me. So it had the belt buckle marks on the back and the action was super high with very heavy strings. My dad didn't change the strings, nor did he change the action. He's like, so it was really hard for me to wrangle, you know, as a as an 11-year-old. But <laughs> I got around it, you know, I got around it and, and I got a Mesa Boogie and I, I set it up, a Studio 22 Mesa Boogie and with a Sans amp and I dialed it in. And made my first demo called Under the Influence when I was 14. I recorded with a band wow. at home. So we cleared out the kitchen and the living room and we told my mother we're recording. So we got the band in. My dad recorded on a Tascam and a reel-to-reel and we did the whole five tracks together with the band. Um, and I was very, you know, excited about that being the first recording. And, and one of the, the first song I wrote was actually called Song for Carlos on that which I dedicated to Santana for influencing me. And it was kind of Latino sort of vibe. But we had a percussion player. We had a great drummer and uh, bass player and everybody. And then... Were you known as the... Sorry to interject. Were you known as the girl in town that was like fucking sick, badass? Like, Orianthe, you got to go see her. Like the female Eddie Van Halen in Pasadena kind of? <laughs> I don't know about that. But, you know, I did definitely play a lot of shows. And we definitely got a big following as a cover band in Australia. But in they, you were showcasing doing solos and stuff even when you were 15, oh, yeah. 16. I was, putting, I was putting guitar solos in Carbonogue songs. Wow. <laughs> you know I mean, because we were playing top 40 songs, like yeah. three sets a night, as you do in a cover band, right? So you get paid pretty well back then too and playing three nights a week. You know, I was bringing home pretty good money as a teenager, seriously. Like, and, and I was up until 3 or 4 a.m. Bless my mother. She used to stay up for me and I was, you know, she would drive me home or the lead singer would or somebody would. But they were all in their 30s and I was, as I said, like 15. Yeah. So as Were soon they cool as, with this, your parents? Were they like They were concerned. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say they're cool with it. They, I, I kind of... They kind of had no choice because I was such a, I wouldn't say obnoxious, but set on what I wanted to do. And I'm yeah. like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to play in a cover band. I'm going to learn how to work an audience, learn how to perform, really pay your dues, right, for a certain amount of time. I'm going to get a record deal. And when I was 18, I saved up a bunch of money. Um, me and my dad, we, we built the studio in the backyard, which was actually the garage. And we soundproofed it. And I learned how to play drums, bass, keyboards. And I went and studied at a, well, not studied, but just learned off an engineer at Fat Tracks Recording Studios in Adelaide. And they taught me how to engineer and how to mic, how to put uh, the mics in the right places, wow. how to engineer things. So I learned how to record myself. Yeah. So I literally did this whole album called Violet Journey by myself, locked myself away in the, in the studio for about 10 months, um, wrote every song, played every instrument on it, every instrument on it, and then had that record. And I, I had this press kit I put together. It was very obnoxious of me. It was like, like you know, fucking freaking uh, headshot. headshots, <laughs> you know, really ridiculous. And I had the wind going. It's like this 80s weird shit, just really weird shit. And um, my sister took the photos of the front cover and everything. She's an artist. She's an incredible artist, my sister. And she's actually a really great singer. So I had her sing backgrounds on, oh, nice. but she's too shy. So she doesn't want to, she didn't want to do it, but I forced her to. And then, 
I got a record deal from that album I made with. with I got to come back to that, but fifteen. Well, how did you get in touch with Steve Vai, who actually just uh, called us in the studio with you the other day? Yeah, so Steve, you opened for him or played with him? I did. I opened for Steve at Heaven Nightclub in Adelaide, Australia, when I was fourteen, fifteen okay. years old, around that time. Yeah. And my first management team at the time, one guy was he worked with Austereo, which is um, the radio stations around Australia. Then I had like some lawyer guy that was part of the management team, I think. And then uh, the guy that worked in radio, his wife was doing stuff as well, PR, I guess. So yeah. there was three of them. And um, they just literally knew all the venues in Adelaide, um, sort of around Australia, knew different people. And I got that gig opening for Steve I. And, and he was, it was really nerve wracking for me because it was one of the first like gigs per se, like by myself as a, as a solo act, not cover band or any of that. So I, I put a backing track thing together for me. I had no band. It was just backing track, right? So I had the clicks come in one, two, three, four with the fall, with the fall back. And then, but that wasn't working. So there's no fall back. And I was freaking out, of course, because you got like all these guitar players, all men, with their arms folded, I'm a 14, 15 year old girl by myself on the oh stage. It was like a lamb to the slaughterhouse. And I was like, <laughs> like, you know, I thought things were gonna be thrown at me. I was so nervous, I was shaking. And um, yeah, I, did, I got through it and Steve was watching from the side of stage and he said he really liked my tone and the way I played and he could see I had a real passion for playing. So kept in contact with me and he wanted to sign me to his label back then. Right, so wow. my management team at the time—I'm not sure what happened there—but it got a bit weird. Um, but left them, and then, and then, uh, you know, we—I uh, just continued to work in cover bands, and and then I was 16. I opened for ZZ Top in Australia. Yeah. So I got to know Billy Gibbons. So you had a management team that was opening these doors for you because you're a phenom. Yeah, they, they had contacts for sure, and um, through you know Austria and different places, and and then um, yeah, just I mean getting to open for Steve, getting to open for ZZ Top, doing like Coca-Cola festivals, doing different, I mean, I was doing radio, SAFM to Triple M every morning pretty much during the week before going to school. So I would come in late. Jesus. And just be you have a boyfriend then? Like, no. I mean. No, no, no. I, my guitar was my boyfriend. Like, yeah, literally. You didn't have any time for any of that. I had, I had about 20 or 30 animals in the backyard I was tending to, cleaning <laughs> shit. Um, 20, uh, seriously, I had like phantom pigeons to rabbits to, you know, I don't even know everything. Ducks, um, cats, dogs, um, lizards. I want to go back there with you. I don't even know. It was a lot of lot of things to do for me. It was very colorful. How very did colorful. Carlos, because he got you hooked up with PRS initially. How did he find out about you, Santana? Well, I sent that first record under the influence I did with my dad at home to in Santana the back Management. house that you guys made a kind of studio in, right? No, this oh, was... the one in the... This one in the living room. <laughs> yeah, when I was 14. And okay. I wrote a song called Song for Carlos. So I sent that to Carlos and his brother, Jorge, who unfortunately passed not too long ago, he heard it, showed Carlos, and they played it in Santana Management offices. So wow. that's... And I got an email from him saying, we've been playing at the offices and Carlos loves it and we'd love to meet you one day soon, all this. And then... Were you blown away by that? Oh, it was insane, absolutely. And then, and then I got a call from Paul Reed Smith to say that he absolutely loved it and he's been playing it. And then when I sent the record I did when I was like eighteen to Carlos and PRS, um, Paul invited me over to the Nam show, so I would demonstrate in, at the Nam booth and, and coming to America here in Anaheim. 
In Anaheim, yeah. So you flew over for the NAMM show when you were 18? 18, yeah. 18, 19. And, and so... But you'd never, you'd never been to the United States before? Never been to the United States. And so when I was 18, I also got a call from Santana's manager to say, Carlos is playing tonight at Memorial Drive in Adelaide. And it was like 15,000 people. And, wow. and Carlos really wants to meet you before the show. And I was like, oh, great. I'll get my guitar signed, right? And I was playing the night before... Um, with the cover bands, I didn't sleep. It was like, got home about 4 a.m., got a call from Carlos at like 10, you know what I mean, and come in, you know, to, to sound check. And so I had my guitar and I thought he was just going to sign it. He's like, I want you to join me tonight on stage. Oh so I was like, <laughs> all right. And he's like, and I said, what songs am I playing? He goes, just follow me. I was like, okay. So I literally walk on stage with him and I was on stage with him for 45 minutes because I had learned wow. every single one of Carlos's songs, right? Because I was such a huge fan and I still am a huge fan. So I learned all the solos to whether it be like Europa, Summer Party, to, you know, Braxis, to Freedom, all the records, like literally um, like a crazy fan, but just so engrossed with his music and, and how inspired his solos were. Um, so, and it was the same lineup as my favorite uh, video he ever did was uh, Sacred Fire Live in Mexico. And I always tell people, if you want to hear Carlos, watch that DVD. Big time. Yeah, watch it because it's so inspiring. His solos, he was in this different realm of reality where, you know, as soon as he hit a note and, and the melodies he played were just just so inspiring and, and it makes you want to play guitar. It really does. So, yeah. so he invites you to stay out to the show to play mm -hmm. on the stage with him. Yeah. And you play 45 minutes with Santana at 18 years old? Yeah. Jesus. And he took that DVD and he sent it to <clears throat> Clive Davis and he sent it to a bunch of people. And um, he sent it to Paulie Smith. And that, that's when Paul called me, come to Nam. So I played a show with Paul and Carlos, Dave Navarro, a bunch of people. Michael Bolton, I think, was there. We all <laughs> just played. Um, and in the audience was actually one of the A&R guys Tal Hertzberg for Geffen Interscope Records. So he heard me and I happened to have my press kit with the wind freaking, you know, headshots, crazy shit. So I handed it to him and, and he sent it to uh, uh, Ron Fair and Jimmy Iving. So I got home to Australia, to Adelaide, and I got a, apparently they were trying to contact me, but it was a crazy story because I had so many animals. My rabbit bit the phone cord, so we didn't have a phone for a while. So so I didn't know that I got a record there or anything like that wow. for a while, you know what I mean? Because we had no phone cord and this freaking fat rabbit decided to just chew through everything and, you know. So um, Gaston was its name. It was just, <laughs> <laughs> just on my sister's shoulder as she was painting in the dark. Very weird. Um, anyway, so I got a record deal and it was crazy. And I got How far was that after the damn show? So you come here for what, three, four days for Nam, then fly Nam, home? Well, I actually demonstrated at Nam for... I think two years in a row, two or three years in a row. And, and then, then you got the that's deal. That's why I got the call. And I went to... What did they say to you on the phone? Ori, we love your style. We yeah, want to make Ron a Fair. record for you. It yeah, Ron Fair called. Yeah, Ron Fair called. And he was like, um, I really love your your songwriting, um, your, you know, the way you play and everything. And I think we could do something great together. So I want you to... Geffen's going to fly you to um, LA. We're putting you up at this hotel. I want you to come into the record plant. I want to chat with you. Jimmy Ivey wants to see you at his house. So you got to go meet with him too. So I was like, okay, mom, we're going to go do this. And so she came with me and. Was she managing you at all or just kind of advising you, your mom or she just. My mom. No, she was just a huge support. I mean, yeah. 
she really guided me and still does. I call her every every day. You know, my mom is just an incredible person. I mean, she's so strong. Like she works for the government. She's, you know, with Aboriginal employment and all these different things. And she does, she's on so many different jobs. And, and honestly, she has a really good business sense too. And she's very optimistic, yeah. which um, I get from her. Like she said, keep on going. You know what I mean? If, if something, one door closes, it's meant to close. You're supposed to go a different way, you know? And that's always... You know, I call her sometimes. She's like, no, don't be, you know, this is this is supposed to happen. Like you're supposed to do something else or you're right where you're supposed to be. And she's always been that that guiding sort of light for me. So That's amazing. Um, were you just blown away, though, that you're going to fly to Los Angeles and you have a record deal that happens like one in a million times? Oh. Uh, especially when you live on a different continent? Oh, yeah. I didn't think it was real. Um, was YouTube sort of, around then kind of? Was no, there YouTube videos? I, not so much. I don't think like the internet kind of just was yeah. starting up, right? Um, and and really, you know, taking off. But we, ha- I think MySpace was there. Yeah, yeah okay. MySpace, MySpace was happening. Yeah. yeah. And um, but yeah, coming to coming to America was a huge deal. I mean, we planned the whole trip from like once we have those meetings, we're going to Disneyland. Like once we, you know what I mean? So and my sister came along too for a couple of the trips. The Grafton Hotel, I think we stayed at um, yeah, the second time around. Yeah, so we stayed there. That's nice. And for Interscope, they put us up there. And, and then um, after that, it was like Anaheim. We would stay right by, you know, the whole NAM convention. So, what did you meet David Geffen ever? Um, you know what? That's a that's a good question. I'm not sure. I'm okay. really not sure. Yeah. I, Jimmy Ivan and Ron Fair were the two main guys. They were always in in the studio with me and. And we're always like, you know, I, I mean, it was crazy meeting Ron for the first time, right? And and having that meeting and then going to Jimmy Iovine's home and then playing for him in his son's basement um, set up with like one speaker working with the backing track and Jimmy was si- sitting on a beanbag and there was a crazy party going on and all the kids were dressed in um, dinosaur outfits. It was very <laughs> strange. But you know what? I, after that, I got a call and saying, you signed, you know, which was really wild, you wow. know, really wild. What did you play for Jimmy Iovine at his house? Just with some solos or? Three songs I wrote off Violet Journey because I had the backing tracks done, which I put together myself at home without, I got rid of the vocals and I got rid of the guitar track, right? So I just played that live with the drums and everything. And so I think it was um, a song called He's Gone and a song called, which is kind of a bluesy R&B track and another song called Every Day, which I wrote, which is acoustic. So yeah. Do you have those recordings of the old album still? Oh, yeah. They were actually um, put out through Universal Australia. So they were for sale out there. and The ones you made in the living room and stuff? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. The first one, Under the Influence, we didn't make too many of them. I saw them on eBay going for quite a bit of money. It's pretty crazy, actually. So, yeah. Yeah, you have some super diehard fans that now are stalking me, actually, because they know we're... (laughs) <laughs> we work together. Um, let's talk about that, though. So then do they pair you immediately with Howard Benson on the first record? So that's another crazy story. Like, So I was... Um, Who produced your first record on the label? Uh, it was Howard. But we, the first songwriter that I worked with was um, Desmond Child, which was crazy. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they were like, you got to meet the songwriter. He's amazing. I'm like, Desmond Child is insane. So I had lunch with him at the Earth Cafe and Andreas Carlson. So... And then they're like, yeah, well, let's write a song together, have an idea. Um, the title's called Bad News. And I'm like, okay, cool. We're working tomorrow at Charlie Chapman's old ha- home in Hollywood. And I was like, rad. So we go up there, write the song together, 
Desmond obviously wants to see my range that so has me singing at the top of my range. Um, and it was a great song we wrote. Um, and that was the first track that we did. And then we just, I wrote with Greg Wells, who was here the other day. Yeah. You know, he's a dear friend of mine. He's always here. Uh, Greg and Jody Greg Wells Ma. is a record producer. We just did Buble's album, has done a ton of films, all kinds of stuff. He's an incredible, just, I mean, he's a great person, you know? And, and we wrote together, and he's fast too when you write. Plus, you know? he plays every instrument. I know. So we wrote a song. It was Jody Ma, myself, and him. We wrote two songs off the first record called Untogether and Get It Right. And then, um, and then also a ton of other people that we worked with, like, um, gosh, just so many different writers. But um, Red One to, gosh, uh, Steve Diamond, bunch of people for, you know, according to you and whatnot. Was he a staff producer then there or was he independent? Who's that? Uh, Greg Wells. Um, I'm not sure. He, he was producing. He was brought in as a writer for me. Oh, okay. So um, that's how I knew him. Gotcha. You know, as a songwriter, as a friend and all that. Um, and then so – as I was making all these, writing all these songs, I was shoe shopping because I had a, I had a Nike addiction. So I had to have all the, the new Nikes, right, at the time. And Ed Hardy, they were my two things, which was terrible. So. <laughs> <laughs> terrible. Spending way too much money. My, my mom and I were shopping at the Beverly Center. And I remember going into this shoe store and picking up this pair of Nikes. And then Daughtry's song came on, Home. And the vocals were done so well. I could hear every word. I thought the production was so good. And I said, I said, you know what, Mother? I would love for this man, whoever, whoever produced this record, to make my record. Wow. Right? And I text Tao, Hertzberg at the time. I said, Tao, whoever produced that song, Home by Daughtry, I'd love to meet him if you could do my album because it's powerful. You can hear every lyric. It's storytelling. You know, it's just a, he's a great vocal producer. And he's like, oh, I know him. It's Howard Benson. You should meet with him. So I met with Howard. Howard got really excited. And that's how it happened. You know what's so interesting? That happened when you heard something at the Beverly Center. But two weeks ago, you heard a Jason Raz song. Joe Ciccarelli is a, a very famous producer and engineer. Yeah. But his suite is here at Sunset Sound. And you go, I heard this Jason Raz song. I want whoever mixed that to mix my record. And it was Joe Ciccarelli. That was the exact same story, though, with this. It was crazy, yeah, because <laughs> I, I was saying, oh, cause you were actually asking me, you were saying, yeah, like, who would you like to mix um, the song called White Dove? Uh, which is a very special song, which I wrote about my grandpa passing, and, and it's acoustic, and the vocals and the acoustic guitar have to be done right. It's, it's, a, it's a special person to really mix this song. And you were like, who would you like to do this? I was like, whoever mixed that song, don't uh, don't give up, Jason Mraz. It's like, that happened to be Joe Chicarelli. He He's actually on this lot, and I was working out of his studio. Yeah, we know, did overdubs in there. That was great. Some overdubs, yeah. And um, so I'm very honored and blessed that you know he's going to be mixing this record yeah it's going to be monster it'll be out in 2022 Mm -hmm. what was it like being you know you're beautiful you're super talented i've worked in hollywood 17 years at mtv at different places doing all kinds of things and i've seen some extremely scumbag people in this industry oh yeah were you harassed all the time then i've never even talked to you about that but was it kind of like you know, we'll advance your career, but they tried to come on to you, or is there any of that? Um, there you had know, to be some of it. You know what? Maybe I, you know, it's funny because I have such a, a, a childlike sort of outlook on things, so I don't pay attention as such. I always sure. think of myself as this, like, hippie kid. To be honest, I, I don't know. Maybe I just, like, it didn't hit my radar because – most people think I'm out to lunch, but I'm not. Actually, I'm just focused on like music and different things. And usually if a vibe's wrong in a room, if I just feel off, I'll leave. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? That's that's generally my kind of thing. So to be honest, I didn't really get like people can be kind of mean and weird in this industry. Like they have, but I don't take it personally anymore because I've, I've learned that I used to. I used to get really upset about it. But because of the fact that like there's so much crap that comes with this industry every day that people have to deal with, you don't know what battles other people are fighting, right? Yeah. So someone comes in in a bad mood doesn't mean it's a reflection on you. It's a reflection on their day or what they're going through internally. Exactly. If someone's really nice to you, it means I've had a great day. You know what I mean? It's just, it's it's a good and the bad. And you go to yourself, okay, this is, don't take anything personally. And, and I'm not trying to preach or anything like that because I, I read a lot of different books. You know, I'm, I'm pretty in the sense of like, um, not self-help books, but the, the spiritual kind of outlooks and different ways of, of maneuvering through life and staying uh, inspired because you can let everything get to you. You can let everything affect you and then it just damages you and it hinders you. And and, and so if you keep your childlike enthusiasm, um, which I try to do as much as I can, uh, that you can continue on in this business because this business is brutal and I do not. And it's funny, it's like kids, I love to inspire kids to play music. <clears throat> Getting into this industry, I feel like it's evil to say, you should get into the music business, <laughs> you know, because yeah, wow. it's, it's so, so bad i mean it's so ever-changing you have to find the right people to be around you that you go you're my friends let's work together everyone you know is treated fairly we all win in the end it's a spiritual victory it's not about ego as such because i think that if you think it's all you then that's when you're fucked you know what i mean if you think it's all you then then that's just all wrong because it takes a village it takes a lot of people believes it takes your friends, it takes the right manager, it takes the right business manager, it takes the right agent. It yep. takes, you know what I mean? Not only the right song, but the team you have around you and the people that you work with yep. is kind of everything too. You know what I mean? You could have the best record ever, right? And But you just got to surround yourself with like-minded. And to your credit, everybody that <clears throat> you introduced me to or I introduced you to, they all say, Oh, I love Orianti. She's so sweet. You were so nice to play on a friend of mine or this artist I'm working with to play a solo for him. And he goes, I just can't believe how nice she was. Joe Ciccarelli's like, she's so sweet. And it, that's just a lesson to learn more even so than guitar for younger people. It's like, be nice in this world because you're not going to enjoy this life if you're not kind to everybody. You're going to have problems everywhere you go. Mm -hmm. And you're just going to be... You can tell those people that are in a bad mood all the time. They just live like that. They're angry at oh, the world. They're angry yeah. at you. Those people that leave shitty comments on my YouTube page, oh. <laughs> on the Sunset page. I get page, so many haters. Like, it's unbelievable. When I came out with my Gibson, um, I was so honored. And honestly, they they, they followed this crazy Australian down a rabbit hole of, of, of modifying a J200, which is a very iconic, large acoustic guitar. You know what I mean? And I went yeah. to Montana and they're like, let's do something. I'm like, can you fix a 345 neck on a J200 body and, and make it red and crazy and put crystals on it? And they're like, sure. You know, and I thought that was crazy that they wanted, they picked me to do it. But we did the commercial for it and, and Ray and I, Ray Bidon, she's awesome. She's my um, go-to girl at Gibson. And bless her, we did this whole like, um, it was like a live stream, I guess, of, of the release day for the guitar. And I had all these haters. And then we put up the commercial for it and all these people, she doesn't deserve a guitar. Who the hell is this? You know, and, and all this stuff I'm going, you know what, guys? And then I, at the end of the day, I was like, going, I'm going to take it personally because you know, she can't play. She can't. I was like, well, you know what, guys? You do it. 
go out instead of writing those shitty comments why don't you go put that energy into doing something else because if I don't like something I generally just go I don't pay attention to it you know what I mean I just go oh okay on to the next thing you know what I mean but to to put such you know kind of pointed hate towards an individual or something it's really bad because they don't know what battles you've like we fought as artists to to get to a certain place or to be in this industry Big or time. battles everyone's fighting every day because you know I've battled depression I've battled anxiety I still do actually um, anxiety and all these different things that um, I pre- pretty openly talk about um, you know it's not I was bullied at school I was beaten at school I was like literally scared to go to school because I was thrown into lockers. I was like, my feet were crushed. My, I had a hairline fracture on my head from being head butted, oh. you know. So I, you know, literally that damages you, right? And not only, but what more, I think what damage you, damages you the most is not just like being physically abused at school, but the mental abuse and, and the constant like just badgering or the making you feel like an outsider, right? So that kind of shit, you you know, I, I don't, um, I, I talk about it because I think it's really important that any kid that's going through that right now, like it, it's not fair, it's not right, but it's not you. It's like other person's reality that they're pushing onto you because they're unhappy with their life because people are happy. They're not going to, they're not going to pull somebody else down. They're not going to, you know, um, tell you that you're a piece of crap and you don't deserve to live or, or some horrible things, you know what I mean? And, and I got all of that. So it was literally because I play guitar. I was a hippie, you know, I didn't, I didn't, yeah. you know, care to hurt anybody. So it was like, that's when I kind of learned through not only just like therapy, but just like, um, you know, just in general from talking to a lot of friends and, and different people um, help me out here. You just got to keep, you know, your spirit up and intact and go light energy. You know, if you surround yourself with light energy, you step into the light, live your light and don't be afraid of anything because we're here once. Who knows what can happen tomorrow? Who can know? You know what I mean? We're, we're all here once. And so it, it's the, if you can make people feel happy, if you can make people feel, you know, just loved and the people that you well, generally do love, um, tell them that. You know what I mean? And, and that's really important to me anyway. So I try to do that. I love everything you just said. That's so great. And it's just, it's scary though. It's like, I don't have kids, but I'm almost nervous to have kids to bring them into this world because it's like, even with the left-right politics, and or even we're just talking about music. And if I don't say one on a three-hour podcast with Dweezil Zappa, like I said two things wrong about Eddie Van Halen, and it's like, <laughs> we're just trying to document a studio here. You're trying to release music, or if you have a little bit of success, yeah, you know they just want to destroy you. And it's like, you know, the artist that is in, has a studio here, and he got in some trouble, but they mm-hmm. they want to get to you, and they want you to see that and hurt you, and it's just like the oh, mentality of it. that. They love cutting it. What do they call it? A tall poppy syndrome kind of thing, where you you know, just like to cut you down. Like once you sort yeah. of get to a certain, they love to see people fall. Exactly, and, and it's this weird shit. I got to tell you, it's like why? You know what I mean? It's like I guess. I don't know. It's it makes people feel better that are going through some misery of their own. I don't know what. It's <laughs> you know projecting what I mean? <laughs> their misery to somebody else. They want you to feel like they do, or if it's yeah. like because you, you know, you have some fame or talent that your skin is not thin or something, or you know what I'm saying? It's oh yeah, like we're we're all high and mighty. No, she's got like, money, so this I can say whatever I want to her. About exactly. Anything. It's like you know. It's like no. You know, because you're on a mag- front cover of a magazine or you've got, you know, exactly like songs on radio or whatever. Um, or it's like, 
you know, no, we're all human beings. I'm highly, actually probably more like highly sensitive than, than most, you know, being yeah. an artist because you're being very vulnerable. Big time. And putting yourself out there. And, and us all as individuals who are highly creative and, and work, you know, in this field, uh, you know, we're all tuned a different way and like to serve people. I think that's what our jobs are. And, you know, I kind of feel anyway is that's a purpose, right? Is to serve others, to help others with our music, with our messages and being vulnerable through lyrics, music, sure, yeah. talking. Um, so, yeah. Um, as it's therapy I said, for everybody involved, the listener, the creator, the artist, the musicians that are accompanying you. It's Oh, complete. music saves people's lives. And it's like, it's, it's better than actually, and I say this, like going to church, you go to a concert, it brings everyone together. There's no divide. Music is about that. There's no divide, yeah. you know? And so religion and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I believe in God. I believe in the universe. I was brought up Orthodox, you know, heavily religious kind of situation. You know, I'm half Greek. So, um, but I truly believe, and when I was like 14, I was reading books on Buddhism and all different things, you know, because I just wanted to know more about religion and more about like humanity and, and how, you know, this, the world works in a sense. And just, I was very curious as a kid and I still am. And how, you know, people are kind of, you know, really set with their minds on different things and how it should be, you know, and how we all should be and what our belief systems should be. And, and the way that I am is that you love each other. You try to just project love every day. You bring people together. You know, if you're angry, do with your anger by yourself. Don't project it on somebody else yeah. or say, I'm in a shitty mood today. I'm just letting you know. Okay. Like yeah. being up front, I've been through some shit. So if I, if I lash out, I do something, it's nothing to do with you guys. Like I'm upfront about that. And I think it's really important. Otherwise, you know, it's like, you never know what other people are going through. So you could tip somebody off the edge by acting a certain way or saying something, you know what I mean? And that's exactly. not cool. That's not cool. Well, look so. at the suicide in like high school kids and even kids that are in elementary oh, yeah. school. It's just vicious. And it's also the media you know, they're, they love the divisiveness. It's built to divide people and have them fight because the more comments, the algorithm gets bigger and they make more money. It goes all the way Completely. YouTube. It's, it's, they pin people. I mean, even you with your boyfriend, Richie Sambora, you guys might've split up, but like you've been in tabloids and TMZ and it's just like, I've read some of that and mm -hmm. it's just not even close to being true, but it gets Oh, there was so reaction. much shit. Yeah. Cause we, you know, did a whole record together and RSO and all that kind of stuff. And then you know, when we split, like, I think it was a few years back and then it was like, it was like intense and I got like haters and then, you know, um, then we mended things and then it was like, then, then we started posting photos together like about a year ago or whatever. And then people were like, I, I got death threats, like serious. And it was crazy. And so I just refrained from posting anything. And I don't let anyone know about my private life. I do not at all anymore. Like even my friends, I'm afraid to post about and my family, you know, because people get really like creepy. They follow me home from shows. I've had two people. Uh, you we know, had people show up here at Sunset. Remember? You had people show up here. Yeah. They brought and, your records, and then somebody tried getting in the gate, saying they were your friend or something. Obviously, we didn't let them in, but that was. F they're hitting me up now just because we're together, hanging out, making a record. It's and they're weird. Like, yeah, it's. That's I don't not know what the to way say. To go. But the I think the craziest one that I have the story I had was after an Alice Cooper show. You know, it was you. Hollywood vampire show, um, I think a year and a half ago, or two years ago, um, after Nam, somebody followed me home and camped under my balcony in my condo with a didgeridoo and a loincloth. And um, they had a, like a little tent set up with their dog. And I would hear didgeridoo for like a week, right? My mum was like, 
you know, you stoned, like what's going on? Like, you know, you're hearing didgeridoo. So no, mother, I'm not doing drugs. I can hear a didgeridoo, right? Wow. And um, so I got on the balcony drinking my coffee, didgeridoo again. I'm going, this is not right. This is not right. And so I went for a walk and this guy just grabbed me and he's like, we're meant to be together and I'm playing your native instrument and he's dressed like Tarzan. And long story short, it was very strange. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was very strange. I was like, you know what? Thank you for loving my music. I'm really very honored that you love my music. He said, I have all your records. I'm like, okay. But camping under my balcony and playing didgeridoo every morning is a bit extra, dude. Just a bit extra, you know. I'm not going to put you in prison because the police were there. Like, we got to put this guy away. He's definitely a threat. So, but I'm going to give you a restraining order because this is weird, okay. It got really weird. And I feel, I feel kind of scared, to be honest with you. And, yeah, and he was like, <laughs> yeah. And he, he, he took it fine. And I, I think I haven't heard from him again. And, and yeah, so, yeah. but anyways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All right, let's get back to music. <laughs> um, obviously, you know, almost all the world has seen Michael Jackson's This Is It documentary, which was about his last tour mm -hmm. and the preparation for that with all the rehearsals that were filmed. Now, I've heard different things how you got involved with that. Did Michael Bearden hit you up on MySpace or did Michael call you directly? Yeah, so both happened. I was working with um, Diane Warren. Oh, so yeah. I was working with her, um, which was incredible. She's an amazing songwriter. And I was in the vocal booth putting down a, a vocal thing for her. And um, I got MySpace message. I checked straight after and I was like, we, you're exactly what we're looking for. Um, you know, we checked out your YouTube videos. Michael Jackson loves what you're doing. I was like... Who was this weirdo? It was Michael Bearden, right? I didn't know. And I, so I sent it to my... <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was... And, and I, I was like, I, said, I went, walked into Diane Warren. She goes, oh, I don't think that's right. She goes, I think that's... But who knows? She goes, it could be real. I think it could be real. No way. And um, I sent it to my manager at the time at 19 Entertainment because I was managed by Simon Fuller. Um, I was probably the... It was crazy, actually. I was the only artist that wasn't an idol that was managed by him at the time. Wow. And so he was like, no, this is legit. They want you to come in and and... and uh, you know, play the songs for, for them tomorrow. And so um, he wrote back and then I got a call from Michael Bearden and Michael Jackson to say, like, we've been watching your YouTube videos. Michael's like, I love the way you play. And then Santana told him about me. And um, he's like, can you play Beat It tomorrow and want to be starting something in Dirty Diana? So I learned those songs that evening. I had a crazy Pomeranian at the time who was barking profusely and I was had this large amplifier which i cranked up so everyone at the palazzo which i was living at the time thought this crazy michael jackson fan moved in that just <laughs> all of a sudden you know and uh how long did it take you to learn the beat it solo oh gosh well i'm not that kind Ten of minutes, player two hours oh a few hours for sure because yeah. i was just like you know and i didn't play it just like eddie because i can't play like that i mean I, i'm not that kind of shredder i mean he's incredible i mean you know you can't fill those shoes right Jennifer Batten's incredible too. Why but did Jennifer, sorry to interrupt you again, but why did Jennifer leave the Michael? Did she get fired? I don't know the story. I don't know the story either. Okay. She called me to congratulate me though. She was very sweet. I, I don't know what happened, to be gotcha. honest with you. I didn't ask. I don't know. Um, but, you know, uh, she was really cool and I think she's amazing, you know, and um, to feel, I think they just wanted all new people coming in, maybe. That's what Bearden told me. He said they fired everybody from the past or something. I think so, something like that. And I, I don't know if Michael just wanted you know, different, just a whole different crew for this run. You know? So where was the first time you met Michael? Center staging, um, rehearsal studios and meeting Michael Bearden and just, he goes, you got this? I was like, I think so. <laughs> he's like, all right. And, and he says, Michael's coming in in about 
10 minutes. I was like, all right. And I was like so nervous. I remember just getting so freaking nervous. I didn't even tell my label I was doing this. So Jimmy Ivan didn't know. Nobody knew, aside from my manager. And then Michael walks in and they dim the lights and he sat down on the couch. And he's like, they dimmed the lights because he was coming in? Oh, yeah. So it was very dramatic. <laughs> very dramatic. I've <laughs> so heard the weirdest stories. In re- so Go ahead. He had <laughs> the veil on too and the black hat and bodyguards. It was a whole. And then Frank DeLeo comes in with a cigar and the suit. So it was it was quite the entrance. Yeah. And that, I think, got me more nervous than the actual thing. It was like, like a movie. You know what I mean? It's like very mafia-esque sort of like old movie kind of thing so he sat (laughs) down on the couch and then he's i want to hear this loud so i was like okay cool so the band just went in to beat it so i cranked up my amp played the beat it solo he goes i want to hear what to be starting something so he did that then dirty diana we played and then he's like okay you're all hired and i was like so yeah we just I think I started crying because I, I didn't even know how to, when I was standing in front of Michael, I did, it was like, how do I play guitar again? Like, you know what I mean? It was like this moment was the only time that I felt that nervous. Yeah. Because I thought, this is a lot of pressure. And I honestly was, I didn't throw up or anything, but I just felt like nauseous, you know, like you literally lose like consciousness or anything. And sure. I didn't, I didn't drink anything at the time. I was completely sober. You know what I mean? I was like just health freak, vegan. You know what I mean? So I was just like stone cold sober, just standing in front of everybody and going like, okay, all righty, let's do this. You know what I mean? And trying to get into that realm. And Did Bearden play with you that day? Was he yeah. in the band? Okay, so he was obviously Jonathan, the musical director. Yeah, Jonathan Moffat, Beard, and everyone, we all played. Uh-huh. And Michael just sat down and it was just, it was wild. But Was yeah. Dorian Holly a singer on that too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, he was, yeah. So then does he get up and say, you're all hired and then leaves the room and you guys are all like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then <laughs> yeah. you call Jimmy Iovine in the label and say, hey, Michael Jackson just hired me to be on his no, tour. I couldn't tell him. We all signed waivers. NDAs. We couldn't say anything. Yeah. We couldn't say anything to anybody. So my friends, no one knew what I was doing, but I would just mysteriously disappear and, and not and not see them for like months. Wow. Because nobody could know about this tour. No. They said, what are you doing, Ari? Like, it's weird. I said, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just working. Things are really busy these days. And I'd get home and they'd be like, where were you? I'm like, oh, in the studio. Who'd you work with? I was like, oh, some songwriter. And, and meanwhile, I'm standing in front of like Michael playing Thriller or, you know, Jesus. Beat It. And I couldn't tell anybody except my family. Well, who, were, who made your deal for you? Your agent? He had to know, right? My manager. Okay. Your manager so, penned it up for you? Yeah. My, and my lawyer. Were you with Simon then? My lawyer at the time. Yeah. Okay. Lawyer. So, but it was all kind of pretty just, you know. And then um, Kenny Ortega, I remember, he's the one that told everybody because he walked into jimmy ivine's office and told jimmy oh we have your girl working with us and jimmy's oh, like no. who and he's like oh he's playing guitar so i get this text message it was actually a nice one. Oh my gosh that's amazing we didn't you know but you didn't tell us i was like i couldn't because you know we, we signed all these forms and stuff so yeah but yeah it was very cool so then where did you guys rehearse at staples center yeah in the forum and the forum. So he would rent the, whoever the production company was, would rent these places AEG, out. Yeah, yeah. Jesus, that had to be like a half a million dollars a day with all those employees. I mean, it was a gigantic setup. We had crystals being put on things every day. Swarovski was, you know, part of the show. And and uh, we had giant spiders to giant everything, spaceships, I mean, CGI screens to anything you could imagine. I had a rocket coming out of my guitar neck. So I had lasers coming out of my guitar, yeah. but I couldn't point the laser you know, it was like crazy. I mean, the whole thing. Um, I had a, you know, I mean, everybody was pretty surreal every day. We didn't know what was going to happen. 
So. How much how much one on one time did you spend with Michael? Did you like go to Burger King with him or ever or something? No. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> no Burger King visits, but we when did he, get to hang out a few times. Just you and him? Yeah, yeah, a couple of times. Um, and he was very cool. Like I was worried as to how he would be because you know you hear all these different stories, and it's Michael Jackson, one of the biggest you know stars in the world. So you, you, I didn't want to offend him. I didn't know what was right, the right like because he had just got done with the the charges against him. He had been cleared, and then a lot of charges, yeah. But he he was so sweet and honestly pretty shy. I mean, he was all about the music, and it was really crazy to me too how he knew every part of every song so every sound every whether it be drum part to guitar tone to to keyboard part to vocal part um the dancing i mean he worked tirelessly for everything he was a perfectionist and so you know working with him and learning his kind of work ethic and how he just took everything so seriously made me a better performer or artist you know absolutely i mean i'm very honored i got that time with him Sure. Yeah. Did he seem like he was unhappy? I mean, he had just led such a horrific life with such success. But since he grew up uh, in Gary, Indiana, but literally 20 minutes from where I grew up. Oh, wow. And, you know, you'd hear about all the Jacksons. And uh, Gary Bells, who owns House of Blues Studio, that's Tito's old house. So, I mean, I've known a lot of people. And also Paul, my owner here, he knew a lot about the Jacksons. But did he seem just so out of it because he was i know he was very sharp oh, yeah. about the music but was he he was tired at that point i he would was imagine very tired um you know to the point where i actually walked into the offices of aeg one time and i said something's not right you know he just seems like really worn out and they're like oh no he's fine so no and it, i think it was just sheer exhaustion and yeah. and the pressure of coming back after the charges the anxiety the you know, he, I could tell he was anxious, but he was very excited at the same time. So he was having trouble sleeping because of the heaviness of obviously how much money was being spent every day, okay? What the fans were going to say, the critics, you know, everything. I, I, I mean, it, as an artist, we're, we're paranoid as is, you know what I mean, about everything. And then you're the biggest pop star in the world coming back, right? Putting these massive shows together and wanting it to be something you know, perfect. So the pressure that he must have been under would have been exorbitant. And so it, I can imagine why he honestly had trouble going to bed every night, yeah. honestly. And I, and I know I can, to a certain extent, with, with all the craziness that went on too and the allegations and all that, a lot of, a lot of crap That's he was probably trauma. carrying. Trauma, traumatizing. So, yeah. Whether he's guilty, not guilty of yeah. anything, it's like he it's was lot. literally destroyed his whole life in the press. I mean, they would just go. Oh, they ripped him blood. apart. Yeah. It wasn't fair. About his you know. skin, about his voice, about women, about. He wrote that song, Just Leave Me Alone. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I mean, on the flip side, he didn't want to be left alone with the, with the shows and the way he put himself out there. But then with the way he lived his everyday life, he just wanted to be his eccentric self and, yeah. and just you didn't want cameras following him. And I could just tell that like it was shut off time. Then it was performance time. You know, he was all show when it came to when he wanted the cameras to follow him, when he went shopping, he was on show. Right. But we didn't want them there. Then he was a very shy private person, you know, who was very serious about the art of what he was doing. So, yeah. When, where, and when did you get the call that he had passed away? And you were obviously, you guys were making the film, preparing, audition, uh, oh, rehearsing. Yeah. Did you get a call at home one morning yeah. and said, "Don't morning come in of, today"? Morning of, morning of. I got ready. Um, I was checking my emails. I remember, I was, uh, 
my sister was with me, I think so, I'm not sure. But I was getting ready to go down to the Staples Center for our final dress rehearsal. Oh, so you guys are right at the end of this. Thing. We, we even had, I think, the keys to our apartment in London. So we we're ready to go, right, to the O2. And um, I got a call from my manager and saw these different, um, you know, sort of emails come through. And then I got these news alert. Uh, Michael's been taken to hospital and stuff. My manager called and said, oh, Michael passed. I said, no, that can't Jesus. be right. Because the night before he was hugging us. He took me aside and said, I'm so excited. I can't wait to do this with you guys. And he seemed actually the healthiest that I had seen him was that evening before he passed, right? Wow. And we finished rehearsing at 12.30 in the morning, right? So we were so tired, but he was like so buzzed about it. He said, it's going to be an awesome show. It's going to be great. And then um, to get that call, it was disbelief until I got to the Staples Center and everyone just started crying. And Michael Bearden was the first person I saw and we just both hugged each other and just started crying. Like it was beyond like it was like three or four months we all worked together for you know intensely every day so it was kind of like we lost a friend we lost someone who we looked up to we we just felt like it was wow like is this real like you know what I mean and the, it was pretty traumatic for everybody you know just yeah even yeah. when like somebody like Eddie Van Halen passed away you know these people are just beyond even like human they're just so big Oh, and Michael massive. Jackson especially, and that's another Sunset Sound artist that you know did so much work in here, which you knew Prince. Oh yeah. How did he find out about you? Did he see you on the internet? Prince actually saw me on YouTube, and um, 2007. So before I met Michael, I met oh, Prince. Oh, so it was back. Okay. Yeah, and so he had just finished the Super Bowl. Which was an epic performance, and it, you know, Purple Rain. It's like it starts raining. It's like how do you you can't do that? <laughs> it's like the greatest you know, it's like, ever. It was incredible, and and so I was watching that, going, "Wow, it's amazing!" Literally the day after, I get a call. Hi, this is Prince. I'm going. I thought it was my friend, so I was like, "No, it's not." And I nearly hung up on him. <laughs> and he's like, "No, it really is." And I'm flying in. He goes, "I'm flying in from uh, Vegas with Sheila E, and we're going to the to the record plant, and I want to jam with you." And I was like okay that's amazing so he said i'll meet you there at like four or five so i was like okay so i went down to the record plant and um got to jam with prince for four or five hours with, with sheila e and he's like you play one of your ideas and i play one of mine and i'm playing bass and you play guitar and i was like okay <laughs> so that was crazy and sheila played drums and we just recorded i i gotta find those recordings because somebody yeah, recorded that do. entire thing so really yeah and we started a song called uh knocking down the door and because uh, he said your first song should be like knocking down a door and that's what we know so we started it never finished it and it was like just beginnings of an idea and I finished off the song funny enough with uh, Robbie Krieger and Phil Chen who sadly passed recently yeah and we recorded it all together and that was used for a Prince documentary that I didn't even know was aired a while back but yeah I'm in, I've helped out the Prince documentary that Netflix is doing right now, and all his stuff is in Iron Mountain, which is on Santa Monica. It's Warner Brothers' vault. Oh, and wow. that's where okay. the Van Halen stuff is, the Prince stuff. I guess it's just insane the amount of recordings there. I, oh, yeah. Your recordings might be in there. Who um, knows? Uh, well, I know we, we jammed for a long time, and it was really fun, and uh, wow, really cool experience for sure. You know. Let me... Uh, you just worked with such legends. Um, so... Michael Jackson passes away. You join Alice Cooper's band then, 2011. Yeah. yeah. Did they, they had never had a female in the band before. How did that, no. was that Tommy Hendrickson that kind of facilitated no. that? Or? Um, 
so I had done some session work with Bob Ezrin, um, who produced a lot of legendary records, and, and uh-huh. he's a great guy. And so I'd worked with Bob Ezrin on Fifi Dobson's album. Wow, and, my uh, friends Yellow Wolf used to be. Oh, yeah, they used to be together, yeah. yeah. So her big single, I guess, called Just Br- Don't Breathe. Sorry if I got it wrong. Something Breathe. Anyway, <laughs> so I played all the guitars in that oh, song. Oh, nice. So, um, but Bob was on FaceTime with me and uh, we worked together quite some time ago. And and then um, and then we did, I did American Idol finale with Alice Cooper. We did Schools Out with all the contestants because I was managed by Simon Fuller. So he had me, you know, always with like Ryan Seacrest and everybody and working with the Idol um, contestants. And so... Um, yeah, that was really fun. I was dressed like Angus Young in a schoolgirl's outfit uh-huh. playing schools out. And I was hanging out with Alice. Those are the nicest people like Ezrin and, and Alice. And, and then I went to uh, Nashville with Dave Stewart, who's a dear friend of mine, like my English family, the Stewarts, you know. I've known them for quite some time. Um, and I was making a record out there at Blackbird. And when we finished the record, I got a call from Alice going, my guitar player just left for um, Thin Lizzy. Um, would you come in and... And, and play lead guitar for me for the tour. Damon um, Johnson, right? Damon Johnson, yeah. who's amazing, incredible guy, an incredible player. And so he left. Um, sorry. And then um, so he left and he was like, you know, um, can you learn 25 songs in a week? Holy cow. And I was like, sure, that sounds like fun. Not knowing that Alice Cooper songs are not easy, right? Some of them are kind of like Frank Zappa. There's no like time signature, especially Halo of Flies, which is nine minutes long which is orchestrated guitar parts, you wow. know what I mean? So it's like three guitar players on different drugs playing different orchestrated parts, <laughs> right? So I didn't know which part I had to learn. So I learned them all and it was really hard. The parts weren't so hard for me to learn as such to retain all of that information, you know what I mean, for every song and remember all, when to come in and out. Then not knowing that when you play the songs on stage, you're dodging knives, pythons, Frankenstein, guillotines, evil bubbles, whatever is going on. I talked to Glenn Solo about the production of that concerts are just insane. Oh, it's you insane. Know, Feed My Frankenstein, everything. It's Yeah, it's completely insane. And then it goes completely dark too. So you start songs in the darkness. So you've got to uh, find, as soon as you finish the last song, you've got to find that position to start Noah, Mr. Nice Guy or Billion Dollar Babies or whatever it is. You know, so that was, I did that for three and a half years with Alice, you know, and it was so fun. Um, crazy. Did you, you, because you had such success with According to You, I mean, that is literally one of the biggest songs of the last decade. Did you not want to be somebody's guitarist, though? Like, I was talking to Carmen, she's like, I -hmm. told Jeff I didn't want to be his guitarist. I wanted to do, were you kind of, I mean, these are just the biggest artists in the world you're working with, so anything is a complete honor to play with them, and you're so talented and capable, but did you want to be a solo artist that whole time, or were you kind of like, I'll go do this now, I'll go do this, this is a great thing, this is awesome exposure? It's fun. I learned the parts. Were you yeah. in the back of your mind? Was like I'm gonna go make some some of my music someday. Are you? What was that? Your manager's advice? You know, honestly, I just go with how I'm feeling sure. all the time. It's not it, nothing. And I can say this: I don't premeditate things, nor do I think strongly about any situation. I just go on how I'm feeling at the time. So getting a call from Alice Cooper and him saying, "I want you to be my lead guitar player," I'm like, that sounds like fun. That'd be amazing. It'd yeah. be an honor. And I didn't think, oh, I want to be a solo artist. So I just finished an album with Dave Stewart that I go promote through Universal Records. I was like, put that aside. And this sounds like fun. And maybe that's the ADD in me or whatever it is, but probably not. It's just music. 
and and getting to work with a legend and getting to go okay well i made a great record but i can still promote that on the road with alice and i get to be part of something very very cool i'll learn a lot and it's just epic i mean you know what i mean it's like no not many people get that call no so i go to myself (laughs) you know what i mean like you're the first come on now like you know so you know when when that happens that decisions are usually made with me pretty instant like i don't think too much which can work against me and sometimes it has but most of the time i go with it because it's like if someone presents something to me oh, that's that's awesome absolutely and i just say yes to it yeah. you know what i mean so that decision was made and i was very happy i made the decision my parents they didn't know too much about alice cooper they looked <laughs> him up <laughs> and they had these guys covered in tattoos and alice with the head and the guillotine he's like and i said I said, Mom, Dad, um, I've decided I'm you know, going to join Alice Cooper. And like, they looked at, and I remember getting a call from my father. He's like, we just watched some videos. And, um, you know, this seems like quite, um, you know, the, the guys are in the band, they, you know, they're covered in tattoos. They, they seem quite different. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it looks very angry. And, uh, and, uh, and when they met them all, they're the sweetest guys you'd ever meet. Honestly, Chuck, Glenn, Tommy, you know, Ryan and... Steve Hunter was in the band when I first joined. He was an incredible guitar player. And, um, you know, so when they met them, they were like, okay, these guys are like, they're going to take care of it. They're like brothers. They're like family. You know what I mean? They're, they're good guys. And Alice was the sweetest and Cheryl and everyone. But at first they were like a little scared, like with the, with the knives and everything going on too and <laughs> the blood. I'm like, how are you going to fit into this? I said, don't worry. I said, mom and dad, I'm going to turn into like a, I'm going to turn into a zombie. I'm going to be an irritable zombie. And, um, yeah, I did. And I think at the end, Alice was scared of my hair because it kept on growing. I kept on putting extensions in, which, by the way, those extensions, because people will look up photos, so your hair was crazy. That was actually super glue um, because the hair would get ripped out ah. during some of the shows. So I used to tell my tech, oh, just put some super glue on that and just stick it back in because there's no <laughs> bold spot. By the end of the tour, I had a head full of super glue. It was ah. really uncomfortable. Yeah, and, and it was and it was covered in blood, so I had like red streaks in my hair. Wow, dedication! <laughs> it was a lot. Is that Weird. when? So you do a few tours with that group. Is this when uh, you meet Richie? Where did you meet yeah. Richie at? Um, Alice actually introduced Richie and I. No um, way. Alice Cooper introduced you to Richie Sambora. Yes, in Maui, we're playing a show out there with Sammy Hagar, Steven Tyler, the Doobie Brothers. Bob Rock was there. He was playing guitar. And we were playing it. It was like a charity show for Shep Gordon because he lives yeah. in Maui. So um, we we played this like celebrity thing. We raised a lot of they raised a lot of money um, for it. And Richie showed up last minute with his daughter and his family because he was vacationing out there and on the island by chance because he usually never goes to Maui. He goes to Kona instead. But that year he went there. So we ended up jamming and and then um, I don't know. We just kind of hit it off. And honestly. Was he uh, there with Heather Locklear then? No. Okay. No, they had split. I don't know. Quite it. some time ago. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't read that. <laughs> yeah. He was single at the time. And and um, so what happened was we ended up, and to be honest, I wasn't, I mean, I was a fan of some of the Bon Jovi stuff, of course, like yeah. living on a prayer and all that. But um, I was a real fan of, of uh, Richie's guitar playing. You know, I thought he was an incredible guitar player. Um and so when, when Alice was like, oh, yeah, Richie's coming. You got to learn some songs. I'm like, that's awesome. That'd be cool. It'd be fun, you know? And then we just, um, and I remember, I remember after the, the 
jam where she's like, oh, can I have your number? We should jam when we get back to LA and hang out. And I was like, yeah, it'll be amazing. It'll be really cool. So literally the day I got home, Richie texted me. So what are you doing? You know, like literally. And I was like, oh, I'm just hanging out, getting ready to, you know, go on another tour with Alice, you know, going to Germany. He was like, oh, we'll come around tomorrow. And, and we just ended up, you know, hanging out, jamming, talking about music and about life and everything. And then we just ended up dating and getting together within. So you kind of left the Alice Cooper thing to be with Richie. I did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I, I left Alice so we could do the uh, RSO um, collaboration situation thing that we, we wrote some great songs uh, for that record. Did you guys do like three records too all together then? I think that well, it was like one record that was, we wrote a lot of songs together for that with Bob Rock. And, um, you know, I'm proud of that album. We, we did a, a really, you know, we, we put everything into it. We really did, you know, for five years. Wow. That. So Holy yeah. Cow. Yeah. Cause he has a studio at his house. So you guys did some production there kind of. And yeah. So it grew from being, um, a garage band situation on my laptop to Bob Rock decking out his entire kitchen. So now it's, <laughs> yeah, it turned into a full studio. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is awesome. I mean, cause we were like literally getting up, I'd be cooking and, and you know, the engineer would be there with Bob and Bob moved in <laughs> basically. And my Persian cat would be like Scarlet would be sitting there and, on the control desk, like just Bob and, you know, so it was really funny, but cool. <laughs> so you're going to be on the Legends of Rock cruise. Yes, that's going to be so fun. I did that about four years ago and it goes from um, Miami, Bahamas, and yeah, we just jam out. It's so fun. That's so fun. awesome. When is that? Or how can people even get tickets? Um, I think it's sold out. Okay, really? Yeah. No, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, you do have a show, which I don't even know if you've announced yet, but January 8th here in Los Angeles at the Bourbon Room, which is owned by yes. a friend of mine. Um, yes. It's on Hollywood Boulevard. Mm -hmm. So January 8th, you can go to Bourbon Room uh, and get tickets for that. Mm -hmm. um, you have so much. You have a, a record coming out, some other releases coming out in 2022. You have an amp coming out. You have a guitar that amp. just came out. I have, yes, my Gibson came out. I got a new PRS, which I can't talk about too much because I've been told... Bless the PRS family. I love you all. But they put in, in bold writing, do not tease it, do not announce. But it is coming. Something's coming out next year. It's very cool. Um, and then Orange Amplifiers, Pat Foley has been amazing. Um, and I feel very honored to come out with my own signature amp, which is insane. Yes. And it sounds glorious. And that's all I can say. <laughs> you know what I love about you also, though, with your guitar playing is that you don't do a lot of pedals, do you? You're like... You do Not the wah really. a little bit, and you run through the amp, but mm -hmm. you don't have this massive pedal board where you need all these effects going all the time. You're just you're I phenomenal. Did. That's the thing. Oh, no, you thank, did? Thank you very much for saying it, but I, I did, and, and I was um, actually um, endorsed by uh, TC Electronics, and they used to send me rack mounts of effects. So for my first tour of Japan, and some are Sonic, actually, and I had a wireless pack. I had rack mount of freaking every effect you could possibly name. I'd flange to freaking delays, to reverbs, to choruses, to different distortions. I mean, my tech was literally hitting different things for every solo. So I'm like, just use them all. Just use them all, you know? Uh -huh. And so I, I had my, I was running around on these sparkly freaking converses, like in these Summersonic, it was like 100,000 people. When you play in Japan, they're massive, you know, audiences. But the sound was horrible. It sounded like crap. There's like, there's one video which for some reason has like 11 million views and it's me playing voodoo child. I've and, seen that. That's sick. But the sound, 
was so static because I had not only the EVH amp, which was on 10 with the distortion a decimator, then I had stacks of freaking T-Selectronics effects. And then I had a wireless pack and it was like, rah, like it was like so much freaking stuff going on that it was just like containing the sound. It was like this wild beast contained, you know what I mean? It was very static, that's all I can say. And, and it doesn't bring me great joy to hear the sound on that video, but for some reason, I think the energy of it and the enthusiasm overread the tone. You run out in Converse's <laughs> and a little vest on, and you just- I was you delirious. You never think this gigantic guitar sound would come from this, this you're mo you could be a model, and you're oh, just, you know. No, well, thank you, but I was so delirious. I remember we didn't sleep for five days on that tour, and my tour manager said, I was not drunk or anything. And some people were like, are we on drugs? I was like, we doing anything? I was actually completely sober. It was purely lack of sleep that makes you a little crazy. Well, maybe Big really time. crazy. So at that point in Singapore, those two shows, we were so out of it. My tour manager said, if you don't sleep, you're probably going to die. So he ordered me to go to sleep. And it was funny. Straight after that performance, I ran onto the tour bus. My bass player had her heel sticking out from her um, bunk. And I hit my head on her hill. So it caused me to have a mild concussion. But thankfully, it actually made me sleep really well. <laughs> <laughs> so I slept for like 14 uh. hours. Nobody woke me because I thought, just leave her sleeping. You know, it's great. And then, and then um, you know, I came out and I said, I feel so great. And then someone's like, really concerned. We thought you were going to die. I was like, and, and my bass player thought she was going to get fired. And I was like, I actually thanked her profusely because nothing would knock me out. Wow. Like, I couldn't get to sleep. Nope. So mild concussion worked really well. All right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Whatever gets the job done, hopefully you I do guess. wake up. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. What's uh, a couple more questions. So you recorded in the same room that Van Halen did five records in, the same record that Led Zeppelin worked on two records, Rolling Stones. What's it mean to make a record of that make a record in a room of that caliber? Do you feel the nostalgia? Do you feel the walls kind of oozing uh, the essence of these past artists? Oh, yeah, big time. That's why making the record here was the choice because of the energy that these walls hold, you know what I mean? And, and the feeling you get like coming in here, in here, you can't slack off. You, you sort of feel like, you know, the greats, all the insane tracks that were were done in that studio studio two studio three with prince um it, it's all there i mean you know as i was saying that before this is not a corporate building this this feels like what it felt like back then like the yeah. wall the, the floor is where like led zeppelin walked on you know everything i mean the couches have changed everything is the same and you know i sort of felt the kind of gravity of it but also the inspiration that came from that too you know what i mean yeah. so it's like this Feeling because I felt feel like I've grown up in a time warp, essentially. You know, coming into the situation kind of felt good to me. You know, what I mean, it's like putting on a vinyl record; it just feels good. Big you know, time. so you I walk in a sunset; yes, yes, yes. it just feels That's right. Such a good analogy. I'm going to steal that from you. That's it. You know, what <laughs> I mean, it's like a vinyl record. It's a real yes. shit. So yeah. You know, that was so cool though when Carlos Santana called you and we I made you put it on speakerphone because I was flipping out myself. But you know, from him calling you in Adelaide and doing a show there and then him calling you at 
two weeks ago. You know, that's oh, yeah. just a testament of how many people and everybody that played on this record, everybody loves you and adores you and wants to be a part of what you're doing. And, you know, we had such a great team making that record for a few months. So um, fun. Yeah, so it was fun. amazing. But it was yeah. so cool that Santana, and I know you speak with him a lot, but, you know, that you're still friends with somebody over 20 years and he was so instrumental and kind of big time doing something big yeah. for you and you're, you know, with PRS and also playing, letting you play at his show. I have, you know, I mean, honestly, I can't say enough great things about Carlos. I mean, he's a reason why I wanted to play electric guitar, reason why I'm here um, making records, having a career in music. Um, you know, he's a friend, but he's also, he's a legend. And I never, you know, I'm like a five-year-old. Every time I get a message from him, like I come running in, I'm like, it's Carlos, you know, and I, I played it to you first. And it was actually after... We put down a song called I Guess You Never Love Me Anyway that I wrote with um, Michael Bearden. And we just finished tracking that in Studio 2. And um, I had that feeling after we finished recording that song, just like that kind of light energy where you feel in complete alignment where with the universe where you're supposed to be, right, at that point in time. And I don't know how to explain that. It might sound a bit foo-foo to some people, but it's it's a feeling. Um, And so... uh, when I, when I felt that and so did uh, Michael Beard and I think we all did at that moment, I get that voicemail message from Carlos, right? He's a very highly spiritual person and always talking about being in alignment with your light energy and being on the right track. And he said, are you happy right now? And I said, I actually really am. You know, it's funny that you call me right now because I'm truly the happiest I've been in a while, you know. Yeah. And that made me feel like we did something good, you know, just Big getting time. a call from him that something made him want to pick up the phone and press my digits and, you know, you know, Cindy, his wife, he's an incredible musician, uh, he called from her phone and, and uh, just texting back and forth. And we're all, I mean, hopefully do something in the future together and Definitely. he's just incredible and, yeah. Signs of the universe, you know, you need to tap into the momentum of things and it's also just lets you know that this is a good spot, this is a good direction to go. Instincts, which, you know, you have very good ones let you know immediately if this is a good place to be even the energy in a room oh big time for sure last question two questions mm-hmm. uh who's an artist that you like right now that's kind of out or even past that you listen to i mean we all love gary obviously he's playing on the record which is so exciting but who's somebody that you like now? who's brand new that's come out yeah really in good. the last couple of years i mean it's flips um, over so many times gosh there are quite a few different um artists i mean you know my iPad, I mean, my iPod right now. I'm going to look at who, who I've been listening to. Also, Possibly. we have uh, 17 eruption work orders. Use discount code ORI10 to give you 10% off. These are the exact work orders signed by Don Landy for the eruption solo, which was called Guitar Solo then. And it was actually tracked about three feet where I'm sitting from right now behind that camera just so much history i mean in this room eruption was tracked but it's also the room that the doors did six albums and it's also the room that janice joplin left this room the day she died did you yeah. know that alex that That's janice crazy. joplin left this room the day she died she was That's here crazy. doing pearl and she left and went to barney's beanery then went to the landmark hotel and overdosed on heroin and then oh, she never shit. showed up for wow Paul rothschild the next day that's crazy. I know. She uh, She's incredible. In, she was absolutely incredible. Beach Boys Good Vibrations done in this room on a tack piano that we gave wow. to Prince. Oh, wow. So that's Prince's wild. dad actually has the tack piano that Good Vibrations was done on. <laughs> that's, that's, that's wild. 
Um, so with uh, artists, I mean, I would say her. Yes. Who I've been listening to a lot. I mean, I think she's freaking great. And, uh, you know, it's funny. It's like most of the stuff I'm listening to is actually old music. Like I've got T-Rex yeah. on here. It's <laughs> like, you know, Reiki sound healing. Do you get into like Billie Eilish or anything? Actually, i got to tell you. Okay, so I just. That would be I a just, perfect combo, you and her. That would be rad. So I just watched the new 007 film and she did the whole intro to yeah. it, right? Music. And I was like, damn, that's good. So I would love to work with Billie Eilish. That would be cool. Yeah, That'd be really cool. We could do something pretty epic. I mean, I love the way she sings because it's like, it's a very, um, I don't know how they've, they, they've uh, mic'd her vocals, but it's it's so, like she doesn't, how do I say it? Not so much, so much power, but it's very powerful. Like the way that they've set the mics and the compression settings where you can hear everything and the way that she, you know, gets her message across and the feeling you get from it. She's a very interesting Yep. Great new artist. You it's know. fresh too. Her brother Phineas oh, yeah. is obviously an amazing producer, engineer, and musician and songwriter because he does his own material. But it's fresh. It's something different. And people hate on her. Oh, she doesn't know how to she doesn't know how to sing. She just whispers. Well, no, she's making music and art and it's Oh, like, it's art. Yeah. It's like the, abstract art yes, in a commercial exactly. way. That's 100%. Really a great thing, yeah. Quit hating everybody. Last question, Ori. Mm-hmm. What would you give your, what would you give 20-year-old Orianthi, what would be the advice you would give 20-year-old Orianthi? Get a really good lawyer and don't <laughs> sign any contracts. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. Now, what <laughs> advice would you give to 15-year-old Ori? That's a gigantic step in your career because... Um, same advice and also um, that, you know, I, I think to really take moments in more like because when I first started and everything I did everything was kind of a blur because I wasn't completely present in the sense like I would right now it's funny if I don't get back to people you know with text messages or anything like that it's not because I didn't want to it's because I want to put my complete attention to everybody like when I call someone or when I'm in somebody's presence I don't want it to be half-assed yeah. And and when I was younger, everything was kind of like, yeah, sure, whatever. And and it's when you're young, that's what you do, right? Your your brain works different ways. And but now, I like to give my complete attention to things, so I'm I'm focused on and in the moment, because that way you can really take in life instead of just going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you just you don't you skim. It's a very surface kind of shit. You know yeah. what I mean? And and finding things about deeper connections, like making better, writing better songs you know, different things. And I think as you get older, you realize the, um, what things mean more and like, like being like in that moment. And, you know, as we're here now talking to each other, being here right now, like focusing on that, not looking at my phone, not, you know what I mean? Or writing a song or, you know, mixing or comping in a minute. I'm going to, my complete attention is going to be on that. Like, I think as, you know, you get older, you realize like you just got to really, be present. Be there. Yes. Just be there. Yeah. yeah. And appreciate the moment. I mean, I, you know, I'm 38 now, but appreciating little things like sunsets and just, you know, cool moments I have with Alex on doing mm-hmm. a project or Bill who's waiting for us to count vocals, <laughs> absorbing those things. Because I'm so blown away that I used to be 19 two minutes ago and now I'm 38. Right. And it's, it's like, like, holy shit, I'm going to be dead soon <laughs> <laughs> no it's it's funny like i was thinking the other day too like i was looking through photos and people especially social media because that's when people give you throwbacks right 
and you go, oh shit, that was 10 years ago. Oh my God, that was 20. I've been here 18 years. I've been living in America for 18 years. And I go, where'd that time go? Like what happened? And, and then you, and I go, okay, I'm, I'm like, you know, in my thirties and I'm going, okay, well, damn. Okay, cool. <laughs> like, but I still feel like a kid in a sense, but also, you know, as you know, like we've grown up because of the sense of being in this industry, it makes you grow up pretty fast and Big also time. kind of, you know, learn a lot of things really fast too. Yeah. Have you, there's a, I'm from Chicago. There's a really great movie that was shot there called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Have yes. you seen it? Of course. Absolutely. The last line of the movie, he says, life comes at you pretty quick. If you don't take a, take the time to look around it once in a while, you might miss it. Yep. So that's a great way to close. I adore Absolutely. you as my friend, as uh, an artist. I adore you too, Drew. And thank, thank you. you so much for doing this. Thank you, Drew. Thank you for everything. Your social is at Orianthi on Facebook, Instagram. Yep. At, um, so I am Orianthi on Instagram. If you want to follow me for crazy photos of my cat and weird shit, go on there. <laughs> um, and things I shouldn't be posting and probably take down within a minute because I've been told not to. Go on there. Um, Twitter. At our Anthony and then Facebook, yeah. Yes, and also come to January 8th Bourbon Room Show here in Hollywood. I'm going to go. Alex is coming, all the team of the record, and I'm sure we'll have some amazing guest musicians. We might have some guests, yeah. Yes, We're going to ask a few people to join. All sure. right, let's go comp some vocals. Let's do that. All right. Thank Bye. you. That was awesome. <laughs>